Um, you have your packets, hopefully you got when you came in. If you didn't, they're back there on each of the stands, or they should be. Um, there, in the packet, there's going to be quite a few verses and passages that we will be looking at. Some of them we'll be looking at a little bit closer than others, but, um, but they're there. They should be in the back of the packet um, there as we go through. Now, just as kind of a review as to, as to, to help kind of set our orientation for what we're actually looking at in the book of Joshua as the children of Israel go into the land of promise and take possession of it. Um, there, God has established with or had established with mankind, given them the privileges of having dominion over the earth. Um, we saw that back in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 when he creates man and woman uh, in his image to have dominion, let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the animals on the ground, and let them have dominion and basically spread his, effectively, his kingdom, his rule. And they abuse that, that privilege and sin against him. And so he kicks them out east of the garden. And we see the same thing happen in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain. He kicks him out east to the east. Um, to the east is a kind of a bad uh, omen out there in the east. Uh, Babylon lives out in the east. And so he kicks them out to the east. And then uh, as time goes by, he sets up a family uh, in Abraham and establishes his covenant with them. They go into the land of, uh, of Egypt and are slaves there for 400 years. And he brings them out and sets them around, the, uh, around Mount Sinai. And there he establishes his covenant with them once again to extend his rule and his reign, this time in the promised land. And so as Joshua and the children of Israel move into the promised land, they're, going to, they're supposed to set up God's rule and his reign there in the land. They're going to purge the evil person from among them. So they're going in, and they're going to not only drive out some people, they're also going to put to the sword uh, Canaanites who are pagans, sacrificing their own children, all kinds of other sins that they're committing. And so they are going to extend God's rule and His reign in this area. We've already seen in Exodus 17 through 20 that they are going to be a kingdom of priests to the nations. So they're setting them, God's setting them up to give the rest of the world access to Himself. They are going to be a kingdom of priests to the rest of the world. And they're going to do that by setting up His rule and His reign there in the promised land as they drive people out. We're going to see that that, come, that comes with some, uh, I guess you would say, uh, problems. You'll notice throughout the narrative of the conquest of the land of Canaan, as they go in, they encounter occasionally people who want to be um, on their side, want to be repentant, want to acknowledge the God of, of Israel and acknowledge what he's done. And some of these people they take in, no, most notable would be whom? Rahab, right? They go into the land of Jericho or they send spies into Jericho. She hides the spies. She gives them all the dirt on all the town. And she says, look, uh, these people, their hearts melted as soon as you parted the Red Sea and you started killing people out east of the land and, and there's not a fighting man left in this town that really wants anything to do with you. And so uh, they take Rahab in and um, she becomes part of the children of Israel, as it were. So much a part that she ends up in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. So 
Matthew chapter 1, sorry. She, uh, so she is integrated into Israel. Uh, we're going to see more, a little bit more of that tonight in uh, kind of a surreptitious way. But, um, but essentially, they take in people that are repentant. So they don't put to the sword necessarily people that are desiring to follow the Lord uh, as they have seen evidence of Him uh, going through the, the land. Last time we saw that Israel went in and defeated Jericho, laid waste to Jericho as they did what the Lord commanded them to do. They claimed the land for God by marching around it uh, one time a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, they march around it seven times, um, seven being a number of perfection, of completion. Um, them marching around the territory is setting the borders for God, the land that he would take. And then they blow the ram's horn, which is a battle cry, inviting the king in. And all of a sudden, the king is there. And what happens to the walls of Jericho? They come tumbling down. Huh. Uh, right, And everybody is laid waste there in the town. But then something interesting happens. They go to the next town and they think, well, this is going to be a piece of cake. We're just going to march through all of the territory here. And they go into the city of Ai. And what happens? They get defeated. And Joshua tears his clothes. He's thinking, why is this? This is, woe is me. We are, we are a, a, a people of ruin. What have you done to us, Lord? Why have you defeated us? And God just tells him, stand up. It's aching. All right? He, he sinned. Get up off the ground. Relax. Uh, we need to do something about aching. What did Achan do? He took some stuff. What's wrong with taking some stuff? You, you, you knocked out Jericho. Why can't you take any other spoils? This is God's stuff. Uh, God has set a precedence for the children of Israel as they move into the, the land that this, there's certain stuff in here that is mine that you're giving to me, including the people that for 400 years at least, plus some, have been set on pagan idolatry and pagan worship and child sacrifice and all kinds of other things. Those people are set aside for me. You're not supposed to keep them as your slaves. You are going to put them to the sword. You are going to burn the city to the ground. You are going to dedicate all of this to me. And so when Achan goes into, when they go into Jericho and Achan takes some of the possessions, some gold and some fabrics and a couple of other things, he takes those and buries them in his tent. Now Achan and his family become what that thing is, which is devoted to the Lord. So that means that not only does Joshua have to set fire to all the things that Achan has taken, but they also have to stone Achan and his family who hid the stuff, right? Because that is dedicated to the Lord. So once they do that, they go back into Ai again, and they uh, defeat it and commit it to the Lord, uh, except for a little bit of something that they're able to keep for themselves. Now we go into, we're going to finish up um, the, con the bulk of the conquest and then talk about how the land is divided and some significant things there. And uh, we'll, yes, we'll look at some maps. There'll be some maps on, the, on there, Shannon, so I know you'll like that. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, after, the, after I is defeated, um, you see a change in the kings of the land of Canaan. I'm giving you way too much here. All right. You see a change in the kings of the land of Canaan. They had once been afraid of Joshua and the children of Israel as they were part, as they parted. In fact, uh, Rahab tells them this, right? They, that once we heard of all of that, and then you marched up here to our territory and you started defeating a lot of the kings out there to the east, 
Then we got really scared. And so all of the kings were scared, but there's a, a change that takes place. And it takes, we see it take place in Joshua chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Somebody read that out loud for us. Yeah, so what would you do? I mean, you, um, you remember, I try to remind, remind us this uh, every time we go through parts of the Old Testament is a lot of times in our minds we think of massive cities or even just Tuscaloosa, um, a relatively medium-sized city. But what we should be thinking of is the campus of Emmanuel Baptist Church uh, would be one city. Jericho was... I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it's off the top of my head, but I think it's about six acres, which is about what we're on here. And so that's Jericho. I mean, if you can imagine that, right? Like, so it's a small town. But once, once these cities get wind of what's going on, they know if Jericho, that has these fortified walls, are going to be defeated as easily as they were. Then, and, and, and these slaves were going to escape from Egypt, what are the chances that we're going to be able to stop them? So what would you do? Of course you would call the people next to you and be like, hey, apart, we're not any match for them, but I think together we might be able to take them. And so they band together. They get a group of them together and they kind of, um, as the Bible would say, gird up their loins and they're ready to go. They're ready to start, uh, to start fighting these. Well, almost all of them. There's one group that has a slightly different strategy. So that's one strategy you could take. You could take the strategy of together we can defeat these guys. Or you could do what the Gibeonites decided to do, which is, hey, why don't we just go to them and befriend them? But then there's a problem with that. All right? If you see this army out there, in the land of Egypt, escaping, water is parting in front of them twice. They're able to just easily march across. Let me just pause here and just say, is as narrow compared to the Red Sea, as narrow as the Jordan River is, you know how hard it is to get a million people across a body of water? I don't care how if that body of water is at least that deep, it's challenging to get a, an entire group of people across there, right? So it's, it's difficult. So the fact that they were able not only to get out of Egypt, but actually get into the land by way of the, of the Jordan River is a significant act. That's no little feat, okay? And so the fact that they're here, bodies of water seem to be parting in front of them. Uh, that People seem to be falling in front of them. What are the odds we, an enemy, can just walk up into their camp waving a white flag and they not kill us? These people have put men, women, children to the sword. What do you think the odds are that we're just going to be able to walk in there and they go, sure, join our ranks? So what did the Gibeonites decide to do? Well, they go in, but they got to tell them a lie first. They got to tell them, what do they tell them? Do you remember? If you can dig back into your memory from the story, do you remember what they tell them? 
from far off. We're from way out there. So here's what they do. They take old wineskins. They take old stale bread. And you're thinking, what, what are they doing that for? They pack it with them. They go to Joshua and the men and they say, we're from way out there. We're from so far out there that when we left, these wineskins were new. <laughs> when we left, the bread that we've got was warm. <laughs> Look at it. It's moldy. The wineskins are bursting now. And so Joshua and the men of Israel uh, look at them. They more or less take them at their word, and they accept them into their ranks, only to discover later that they're lying. Because they march up to the Gibeonite cities, and they go, wait, wait a minute. These are your cities. You told us you were from way out there. You're from, you were actually from these cities here. And they're like, eh. <laughs> Remember you swore. But here's the thing. Joshua and the children of Israel, have, especially the leaders of Israel, have made an oath before the Lord with the Gibeonites. Here's the other uh, stink of it. Joshua, yet again, just like we saw with the city of Ai, Joshua yet again didn't consult the Lord before he made the deal with the Gibeonites. He actually says that in the middle of the passage uh, there, and I, I probably won't be able to remember which one it is. I think it's Joshua 9.14. Uh, yeah, Joshua 9.14. So the men took some of their provisions but did not ask counsel from the Lord. If there's one flaw that Joshua seems to be repeating over and over as they go into the land, it's failing to ask the Lord for counsel. This is, remember, this is a holy war. They're going in on behalf of the Lord. They're the sword of the Lord, if, if, if you will as they go into the land, and Joshua didn't, at the, in the city of Ai, did not seek counsel from the Lord and got their rear ends kicked. And then now they, he goes again to take these people into his counsel without, or into his camp without taking counsel from the Lord. And it turns out they were actually beguiling him. So what does he do? Well, it would be nice if he could just, you know, turn the sword on these people and put them to death right there, right? There's a problem with that. See, he's made an oath in the Lord's name. And even though he has been tricked, he's been beguiled, it's a serious offense against the Lord to go back on an oath you swore to him. There's a covenant that he's basically made with the Gibeonites, and he's not going to go back on his promise. Isn't that something? I mean, think about this for just a second. In a world that we live in, what is a promise? Have you ever had a roofer? <laughs> You've ever had to replace a roof? I'll be out there tomorrow, I promise. They're not going to be out there tomorrow. I'll just go ahead and tell you. If you do have a roofer or any kind of worker that tells you they're going to be out there and they actually show up on the day that they say they are, you keep that guy <laughs> until the day you die, or he does, whichever comes first. <laughs> right? um, 
it's today, if somebody keeps their word, it's uh, unbelievable. They shine like a star against a, a black sky, so to speak, uh, because it's just so rare. Uh, marriage falls apart at a rate of about 50%. Um, you know, that, it's just, it, there, there's a, it, it, it's an amazing what Joshua actually does here. Almost as if he recognizes the mistake that he's made in doing this. I think he does. Recognizes that, oh, I got tricked, but I shouldn't have done that. And keeps his word anyway. But what ends up happening with them, well, uh, back up just one second. Um, So uh, let me make sure I'm in the right place. Uh, Oh, yeah. So once again here, Moses has the law that you have to go into the land and you have to set fire to everyone. Basically, you have to kill everyone. Now, again, we, we have uh, at least biblical evidence that they uh, burned everything to the ground only a handful of times, only a few times. Uh, Jericho, I, with one exception for a few provisions that they were able to take from the city of I. And... Um, in the land, Hatsor, I think, is one other one. And then they actually are able to go later with Saul and do the same thing, but that's in 1 Samuel. We'll talk about that later. The rest of the time, they kill everybody that's in the city, but there's no indication in the text that they burn it all to the ground, but rather kill everybody with the sword. It seems, though, the Lord is, a, is allowing them, like he does in the city of Ai, to keep some possessions. And so, um, but he, here it seems that though Moses had said, go in and kill everybody, there seems to be some, some ability for them to, um, let, let's say, not do that in the event that there are people that are not going to betray the integrity of the Lord's covenant with Israel. So the people of Gibeon that come into their camp, even though they lied, they're going to be set to slavery. They're going to make them uh, slaves, basically. And the Gibeonites agree to this. Hey, anything's better than going to war with you and dying by the sword, I think. So we'll gladly you know, be your, your slaves and make your weapons and all that kind of stuff. That's fine. Um, but so long as they're not going to take Israel and lead them into betrayal of the covenant that they have with God, it seems that they're able to make some provisions here with some of the people that they come in contact with. The Lord, in other words, permits them to take Gibeon into their encampment or into their, into their group. Um, but one of the things that's interesting is that there is a reversal of what actually is supposed to happen here. Uh, Israel, because they failed to consult the Lord before they made this agreement with Gibeon, they're not able to take the Gibeonite cities because they've made the covenant. So they're not able to then go in and destroy the Gibeonite cities. So that is one way in which they're effectively punished for their uh, lack of consulting of the Lord. But then the nation of Gibeon... One second, real quick. Yeah, there we go. Um, Where am I? Okay. They fail to consult. The Gibeonites are then put to be slaves and fall under a curse to be uh, Israel's slaves. They fall under a curse to be Israel's slaves. By the way, if you look at Genesis 9.26, remember this is Noah? He has, um, 
He is cursing his son and blessing his two other sons. He says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Um, Shem, we get uh, the word Semitic from Shem, son of Noah. And uh, Canaan is going to serve Shem. And so here we have really a fulfillment of the Noah's curse when he wakes up from his drunken stupor. Um, so um, now to give you an idea of the way the land, because we're, I want to talk about the way the sort of the battle strategy evolved here or the way it kind of sh- shaped out for Joshua and the children of Israel is just sort of I'm sure the Lord had the intentions of doing this. I don't know if Joshua also knew about it or not. But um, you can, the lines are less important, but you can kind of see what's about to happen. They have, this, Gilgal is right here. Gilgal is going to be their uh, base camp, so to speak. The reason that Gilgal is really nice is it's right here at the base of the hills it's the plain, they came across the plain, they got to Jericho, and then Gilgal is at the base of the hills here. Um, so Gilgal becomes their encampment, and they're going to move right across the land here. Here's the Gibeonite city right here. They come to meet, they come to meet them along the way. But they, they're going to come right across this way, and they're going to basically cut the land in half. Now, the reason why this is really nice that they do this is because they end up taking possession of the highest hills in the region. All right? So if you're... Um, this is probably less true of modern-day battle than it is of ancient battle, but for sure uh, true of ancient battle is the high ground is the ground you want, right? And so essentially what they do is they march through the middle of the territory they separate off the northern groups from the southern groups. So they're handling uh, chunks of the territory at a time, I guess is the way you could think of it. But then by virtue of the fact that they march right through the middle of the territory, they have now gained high ground over the entire land. And so Gilgal is situated right... uh, kind of at the, the feet of these hills, but it's, it's sort of on a hill. It's elevated platform. And so it's sort of their base camp, but they basically now own this entire territory here. And so they're about to go into a southern campaign where they're going to defeat all these people down here, and then they're going to gather back together at Gilgal, and then they're going to go through a northern campaign where they're going to take out the people up here. Make sense? So it's actually a fairly ingenious battle strategy that they've got going on as they, as they walk into the land. Things that you probably wouldn't recognize if you're just reading a bunch of names on a list of cities that they, they attacked. Um, any questions about that part of the Gibeonites? All right, good deal. Um, so they, they go into the south first. They have two campaigns, basically. The south campaign is the much bigger of the two campaigns. Um, and then they go back, then they gather together and go back to the north. But once it was apparent that Joshua had severed northern Canaan from the south uh, and had effectively installed Israel on this sort of central hill country, um, the Canaanites and the other populations uh, throughout the length and the breadth of the land decided to forego their petty differences once again. We've heard this story before. 
they decided to, hey, uh, southern nations, let's, let's all get together and let's, uh, let's band together and let's, let's, see if we can, uh, let's see if we can defeat them uh, once again. So they, once again, the southern states decided they're going to they're gonna start gathering together and banding together to defeat uh, Joshua and his men. Now, um, this time though, as they gather together, Joshua seems to consult the Lord, or at least it appears as though he consults the Lord. But what happens in Joshua 10.8 is that the Lord assures Joshua and his army that they're going to have victory. So you can see that um, be the second, the, the back of the first page of your verse list there. Um, Joshua 10.8. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So the, the, the southern states, they kind of get mad, basically. They decide, they hear what Gibeon has done. They've gone in and beguiled the children of Israel. And so they say, well, we're going to attack Gibeon then. We're going to kill them for having betrayed us and our allegiance. And so they go against, well, once Gibeon gets wind of their coming after them, they go to Joshua and they're like, hey, remember that covenant that we made a while back? So uh, there are these people out on the horizon that really want to kill us. So could you do something about that? And, the, and Joshua seems to consult the Lord and the Lord tells him, look, I've given them into your hand so you can uh, go out to victory, go out, go out to battle. And so Joshua goes out to battle. And what happens? You remember what happens in this, in this battle? They're going, what is it? Yeah. Oddly enough, there's something kind of kind of strange about this whole story, this whole scene. Uh, in fact, let's why don't we go ahead and, and read it? It is in is it in what is it, twelve to fifteen? Joshua ten, twelve to fifteen there on the back. Somebody read that out loud. So here, here, here's some just some interesting sort of thematic things that are happening in this passage. Uh, the significance of the sun and moon. Somebody, anybody know? What's the significance of the sun, moon, stars? Yeah, they're often worshipped by various groups. Probably people in Canaan, I would assume. Um, so that's, that's part of it. They are seen, the celestial bodies, stars, sun, moon, they're seen as uh, deities and uh, angelic powers, to represent angelic powers. Um, you see some of this appearing in Revelation, which we won't get into tonight. But, uh, so th the, the fact that Joshua is taking the kingdom of God and he is the leader, the one who's 
charged with installing the kingdom of God in this land. And he is able, so that they can defeat their enemies in one day, to tell the sun and moon to stop. Now, the Bible is really clear, though. Joshua's voice did not stop the sun and the moon. God heeded the voice of Joshua and stopped the sun and the moon. You see that? The, I, it's interesting that the author puts that in there. He, he's, it, it seems that he's trying to communicate, listen, before you go crazy, Joshua's voice isn't the one that stopped it. God's hand stopped it. But God, in the installation of his kingdom through the, per, through the person of Joshua, heeds his voice and stops the sun and the moon. This wasn't an ask. It was a statement. Stop. Go ahead. Jen. So my brother is very intelligent when it comes to science and astronomy and physics and all those things. Sure. And the more that he grows in his knowledge of those things, the less he finds room for Bible faith. Right? Sure. Correct. Correct. Whatever. So, like, it comes down to us having faith that God can do this and uphold everything by His word, by His power, even if science that He created is stopping functioning as it stops functioning as He created it to function. That's right. Because He wills it. Yeah. I mean, like, how do you deal with this? That's right. You would deal with it the same. Well, let me back up. I would deal with it the same way I would deal with God speaking into nothing and creating everything. Uh, the same way I would deal with the Red Sea parting uh, at his command. Through, he used a wind to do it, it says in the text, but through his command. The Jordan River uh, damming up at the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, walking through it. I would deal with it the same way I would deal with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Is I would say, you know, anything that is supernatural. Uh, so let's, let's say this is one of them. This is one of those things. Jonah is a big one for some reason, but Jonah is a huge one that people got to go, really? Um, all of those, I say, let's pause all of those. Let's put a pin in all of those. Let's talk about the resurrection of the dead. Because what you're saying about the sun and the moon and the stars and what about Jonah, those aren't the craziest things I believe. The craziest thing I believe is that a guy died, was died the most horrific death you can die through crucifixion, Roman crucifixion, was in the grave for three days and then was resurrected, but his body was transformed into a new body. That's what I believe. Now, let's talk about the resurrection first. If, at the end of that discussion, we can settle that the resurrection is historically credible based on how you would evaluate historical uh, narratives, you know, stories, um, historical events, then if that's credible, well, then everything's on the table at this point. <laughs> I mean, because you, if, you can, if a guy can die and resurrect never to die again in a new body, he can walk through doors and eat. 
um, and not be a ghost, be a real body, but also not obey the laws of this world and then ascend, then anything else is possible. Because what that means is that I don't live in the world that I think I live in. And so then, so now let's talk about Jonah. Let's talk about, you know, Joshua. Let's talk about whatever, parting of the Red Sea or any of those. All of them have to come back to the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And I think once you establish that credibility of that, then what is the sun standing still in the sky? The sun was created from nothing. So, couldn't it? You know, and I think, those are, I think that's the best approach to argue. Because if, if they reject the crucifixion, if they accept Jonah, but they reject the crucifixion, they're not believers. You know, if they re- accept the sun standing still in the sky, but they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, they're not Christians. So it doesn't really matter that they don't believe in that at this moment. This matters more. Let's talk about this. If that's possible, then the other is too, I think. Does that make sense? Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yes. It does. Yes. It, absolutely. Clint. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, and what Clint's, what, the point that Clint makes is actually a really important one just in terms of argumentation. Um, you know, you're, like evolutionists and, and people like that are basically making an argument over complete randomness, that everything is completely random, yet they plan their lives. They plan a vacation in two weeks because they expect the randomness of this world to continue for the next two weeks. Um, but there's no guarantees of that if everything is random. And so when a person like that makes an argument about the sun standing still in the sky, well, that actually goes along with your worldview, doesn't it? I mean, that things can randomly happen like that. But if everything follows by a pattern, like Clint is saying, then it would seem to indicate that somebody has set that pattern in place. It's part of the fine-tuning argument, if you're interested in that. I think fine-tuning argument's a really good argument for uh, creation. You can look that up later and read it. Um, you go ahead. Yeah, I think what, the way we read the Bible would be the same way we watch the, the weather forecast on TV at night. They're going to say, sunset is at 7.48. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, technically, that's 
Earth rotation is at 748, right? Um, I, I think at, so long as what you end up with is the day being prolonged, the sun uh, not appearing to move in the sky, and Joshua able to defeat the armies because he has enough daylight, uh, I, think, I think basically as long as you don't take out, want to kind of go, well, if you just skeek through, through that line right there, we'll be fine. As long as you don't do that, I think there might be a number of different explanations as to why it happened. or Because, I mean, you, you're talking about the parting of the Red Sea. It happened with wind. It was divine appointed wind, but it, he used wind to do it. Um, the walls of Jericho coming down could have been an earthquake, but it was a divinely appointed earthquake that brings him to the ground, Right. Like, so he uses the things of this world to accomplish his purposes anyway. And so I think it, it, in the event that we know of a phenomenon that can cause this kind of thing, then maybe that's w- what it was. I think I would hesitate to be definitive on it, but, yeah, you know. I mean, this is a lot easier in a debate to have that particular kind of person. I want to sure. Like sure. I don't want to have to land on a uh, I would say, read it carefully. Read the, the passage carefully. Um, be sure that your interpretation ends up with what the passage says. And if you, if you think that there is a cosmological phenomenon that can explain why that happened that way, your explanation is God used that cosmological phenomenon at that moment when Joshua called it out. Fine. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. Um, and some of those things, I think the best way to approach that is that's possible. Uh, you know, all I know is the sun stopped in the sky. So, you know, <laughs> and Joshua killed these guys. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> I mean, every line of that's true. How it, how God did it, uh, that we maybe we'll find out one day. Uh, Tell you what, you believe in Jesus and you can ask him one day. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, um, so the southern campaign is uh, more or less done as Joshua defeats these uh, fools that thought they could really kind of band together. Uh, the Lord gives them into his hand. Then he goes into the northern campaign where it's really separated into two parts this little northern campaign, it's much briefer, a much briefer story than the southern campaign for sure, but um, he basically, uh, almost the exact same thing happens. Essentially, the northern campaign goes, well, let's band together. Third time's the charm, right? And so we'll, um, we'll band together and see if we can defeat him. So Joshua marches up to the waters of Maram, and um, then he defeats them there, and then he defeats the subsequent cities uh, that are around that area. Um, let me go to the next, and we'll... I thought I had... Oh, yeah, yeah, one more. Now, this one's a little bit interesting, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but this is, there's one little episode that occurs right after that where it's a special campaign where Joshua deals with the problem of the Anakim. 
And they are in Kiriath Arba, which is uh, Hebron. Sorry, I think for a second. Uh, which is Hebron. This is the area that's going to be given to Caleb, and Caleb's going to be charged with driving the Anakim out. We know the Anakim? Who are the Anakim? Giants. In fact, the Anakim were the ones that in numbers, when the children of Israel went in there, they said, the Anakim are in there. We look like grasshoppers next to them. And then they say this line, they are the descendants of the, the Nephilim. Well, we were like, well, the Nephilim is before the flood. And I, and I think they're, they're saying they're tall, they're giants, they're big people. And so then they must have come from the Nephilim. And I'm saying, I don't think that they, under, they know that right. I don't think they're reporting that right. But they run across giant people. And these are the Anakim. Okay. Now, the, the curious thing that happens here is that the Anakim are driven out of Hebron and they're driven to the westernmost edge of the land of, of the nation uh, or the land of Canaan. Now, I want you to re- I want to read this in Joshua eleven twenty one to twenty three. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only, this is where the Anakim were, the only, only Anakim left, only in Gaza, in Goth, and in Ashdod did some remain. What is, where, where are those cities? Where have you heard those cities before? Gaza, Goth, and Ashdod. What is it? Philistine cities. So giants flee and run to the Philistine cities. Where was Goliath from? Gath. So, probably, Goliath is probably a descendant of the Anakim, is my guess. This is several hundred years later that Goliath comes on the scene, but that's probably what's going on. Would not be uncommon if a bunch of really tall people went to an area, lived with another group of people, maybe even decided to continue to live together in amongst that people, continued to have children, that they still produced some pretty tall dudes, all right, that may have even joined the army, may have even been called out. It's probably some tall ladies too, all right? So uh, you have this this kind of scene that's sort of setting up David and Goliath in First Samuel. For, uh, First Samuel. So, interestingly, interestingly enough. So this is a look at the northern campaign. We're, don't worry so much about the lines that are being drawn. Just kind of want to show you um, where we are, just geographically. Down here in the baptistry is the Dead Sea. Up here is the Sea of Galilee, and uh, so they walk along the Jordan River. They march up here. Uh, into the land and continue the northern campaign up here in the north. Um, any questions about that? How they're doing their conquest? Question? Uh, well, they would have had to been, yeah. Um, but I don't. I can't think of a passage that mentions it specifically. But I'm sure.
Um, now we get the allotment of the land. And so this is the way the land is going to, in the end, look. And we'll come back to this in just a second. But here's the land of Israel, again, Dead Sea, up here, Sea of Galilee. And you're going to have the land divided up where Judah is going to be down here in the south. Um, you're going to have Simeon in sort of in the middle of Judah, I guess you would say. Keep note, take note over here. There's three tribes out here to the east of the Jordan River, which is a very strange place to be, it would seem. Okay? Um, keep that in mind. Okay. So for the first time, we're told in the scriptures, we learned that the Israelites did not drive out all the people from various areas. We're told that in several passages in Joshua, they didn't drive out all the people from various areas. This isn't going to be the last time we hear about that, but this is the first time we hear that they failed to drive out the people that they were charged with. Remember, they don't drive out all the people immediately. They drive out a lot of the strongholds, but then when they divide up the land, the Lord even tells them before they go in, you're going to take over the land slowly. We're not going to drive them out all at once. You're going to take over the land slowly because if you drive them all out, what will happen? Remember? Wild animals. The land will fall into disrepair. And you won't be able to... This kind of sounds like Adam and Eve. You won't be able to completely have dominion over the land. It will take advantage over you. The wild animals will seek to have dominion over you. So you're going to do it slowly over time. But So they divide up the land and you're supposed to go out and your tribe is supposed to kind of just shoo all the rest of the people away, and, well, they don't do that. And we see the, in the book of Judges what will happen as a result of that. But you notice that the first tribes, uh, to, or the tribes that settle out east, are Reuben, Gad, and ha the half-tribe of Manasseh. Um, and the reason that they settled out there is because they thought it would be suitable for their herds, uh, now look at the Numbers passages there in Numbers 32. This actually happens under Moses' reign. In Numbers 32, it says, Now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock, and they saw the land of Jazar, Jazer and the land of Gilead, and behold, the place was a place for livestock. So the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said to Moses and to Eleazar the priest, and of the chiefs of the congregation, the land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. Whoa, wait a minute. What's the problem with that? Don't take us across the Jordan? They wouldn't go through the water. They wouldn't go fight. They wouldn't go install the kingdom of God in, the, in his land, right? So Moses is really mad. And I, I cut the passage short just because there, there's a lot of language about Moses being really mad and the Lord being really mad. And, uh, and so then he says, but Moses said to the people of, uh, of, Gad, uh, of Gad and to the people of Reuben, shall your brothers go to war while you sit here? But we will, and then they, they come to an agreement and the, they decide, but we will take up arms ready to go before the people of Israel until we have brought them to their place. And our little ones shall live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel have gained his inheritance. So they come to an agreement and they basically decide, 
look, we'll fight, and then once we've fought and we've helped everybody settle, then we'll go back, but we still want this land. And so Moses ends up granting them and then the half-tribe of Manasseh. Go, um, go back to that uh, map real quick. You're going to see, you keep hearing me say the half-tribe of Manasseh. Here's half of Manasseh here, and here's the rest of Manasseh over here. Okay, So this is Manasseh's territory, and then this territory is given to Manasseh because they are also herdsmen. And so they also take the land um, to uh, put their herds in, basically. Uh, who is Manasseh? Joseph's son. Joseph's son. He's one of Joseph's sons. Who's the other one? Ephraim. So Ephraim here is the other son of Joseph. So Joseph does not get an allotment. Well, he kind of does, I guess. He gets a double portion because both of his sons end up getting an allotment. So he gets a double portion because he got the blessing, right? Um, in the end of Genesis from his father. And then uh, uh, also we're going to see that Levi does not get uh, the tribe of Levi, which is the next blank on there. Let me go back through. The tribe of Levi also receives no inheritance be, uh, from the land because the Lord is their inheritance. So Levi doesn't get any. Joseph doesn't get any. Ephraim and Manasseh do get some. So there's your 12 uh, tribes that end up taking up the land. Um, so Joseph receives the double portion through his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And then Manasseh receives the two different portions, one in the east of the Jordan and one to the west of the Jordan. Um, but it seems as though we keep hearing this same sort of refrain over and over in the, uh, as the people of God come to install his kingdom in the land. The same thing tends to be repeated. They have to listen to him. They are told uh, to listen to him before they go into holy war. They don't consult him, and they get defeated. They, again, don't consult him. They get deceived by Gibeon. They are told to go into their land, and men will, be, will flee in front of them. They will be driven out in front of them if they just go into battle, and they instead choose not to. And so we're going to see next time how they're supposed to keep the covenant, and then how they fail to do that, and we get into the book of Judges, and now we've got a real mess on our hands as they're living in the land with a bunch of people that are dragging them into idolatry. So what happens when we don't listen to the Lord? Well, because so he had so many people. Uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, he's the firstborn of Joseph. Is that right? Don't quote me on that, but I think that's, what, I think that's the case. That, that's right. If you go back, um, let me go back to the map here. Um, so this land right here, Gad and Reuben, that makes the Lord pretty mad because they're outside of the land, technically. They don't go into the land. But there's an agreement there. Uh, Moses gives them that land for their herds. So I could only assume that this land is up for the taking, in a sense. So, the land on so this would be theirs. Well, that's a little bit sketchier. Every time the promised land is mapped out in uh, the 
the passages throughout the Pentateuch, uh, it's got different borders. So it appears that um, the promised land was just go in there and people will flee and you'll take over that place. <laughs> because there's one, there's one point where it's like from Egypt all the way to Babylon. And so, I mean, you're, that's all of Mesopotamia. And then there's sometimes where it's the borders that they actually took west of the Jordan, and there's other times where it's a little bit broader. So it's harder to kind of sketch out the, the exactly what area of land they were to take. It seems more just, that's yours, go get it. And, uh, but it, I think the implication was that them not going into the land to fight with their brothers was a big problem and made the Lord pretty mad. So I don't think that this land is, like if you were to block that out, Manasseh would, would have roughly what Judah has. Um, but Manasseh is uh, part of receiving the blessing that Joseph got. I mean, Joseph gets the blessing because all of his brothers were dogs, basically. And um, um, so, yeah. I said, I said blessing, I meant birthright. But so I, I think that's... Um, I think that's probably the implication. But as far as the sizing of it goes, I'm not exactly sure why the boundaries were drawn the way they were, precisely. But you also notice one thing that's really important, actually, that we'll come back to much later on, is where Dan is located. Dan is also a dog. I mean, they are, they're dirty. They're, they don't like where they're situated because this over here is Philistine country. And so what ends up happening is they occupy the hills. They're going to occupy the hill country up here. And this is the Phil Philistine country over here. And they don't want to do what it takes to actually drive the Philistines out. And so what they're left with is basically this right here. So they get really dissatisfied with the size of their land. And so they, they decide to relocate. So they, they go and they grab a pagan priest. And he's going to be their priest and start a new religion, basically. And they go up here and live up here in the north, take over another part of land. They drive out all the people there, start to kill them. And Dan is seen, Dan and actually uh, Ephraim are going to be seen as, as wicked, wicked tribes. In fact, in Revelation, you'll notice which tribe is missing from the list that's called out in, Daniel, in Revelation chapter 7. It's Dan and Ephraim. Both of them are noted idolaters. Yeah. Questions? All right, let's pray and get out of here. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're grateful for what it teaches us and tells us and reminds us to continue to listen to your voice through the scriptures that we have in front of us. We have a gift in the Bible that many around the world are dying to have. And we have in spades so much that we just put it on our shelf and often don't look at it. Forgive us for our neglect of it. And I pray, Father, that we take it seriously and apply it to our hearts, listen to your voice through it, apply it to our lives, that we may be different because we've encountered you through your word in Jesus' name. Amen.